0: So Ahab sent to all the Israelites and assembled the prophets at Mount Carmel. Elijah then came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping with two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Let two bulls be given to us. Let them choose one bull for themselves. Cut it in pieces, lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire is indeed God. So they took the bull that was given them, prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, crying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no answer. As midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no answer, no response. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come closer to me. He repaired the altar of the Lord, took twelve stones according to the number of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. He said, Fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Then he said, do it a second time. Again, he said, do it a third time. And the fire of the Lord fell. All the people fell on their faces and said, the Lord indeed is God. The Lord indeed is God. This is the word of the Lord. Almost 900 years before the coming of Jesus, a baby would be born to nomadic parents, that is, people who've moved their herds across the scuffy land called Gilead on the east side of the Jordan River looking for fresh water, for grass. But that baby grew up to be a prophet. There was a great drought, far worse than usual. There was a despot of a king, Over the ten northern tribes called Israel, his name was Ahab. He had gone to Tyre, a port city of the Canaanites, modern-day Lebanon, and had married a pagan princess named Jezebel. He allowed her to bring into the royal residence all of these gods and goddesses of fertility. Elijah saw this drought as an opportunity for a great confrontation between Israel's God and these gods of fertility. That contest was set up for Mount Carmel. It rises right off the bank almost of the Mediterranean Sea up in the northern part near Haifa. 450 prophets of Baal, one prophet of God Almighty. Let's take a look at the story. Elijah says to the people, come come closer. And when they draw closer to him, he asks, how much longer will you go limping? The translation is a little strange here. It literally says in Hebrew, limping on the boughs, like the limb of a tree. Now, it could mean a little bird anxious about something down below it, a hawk nearby who's sort of flitting from limb to limb. But this word is also used of the crippled grandson of King Saul, Mephibosheth. It says he limped on the boughs, meaning crutches, made from tree limbs. They made crutches from a forked tree limb and wrapped either side with cloth so that it fit fairly comfortably under the arms. So Elijah could be talking about a little bird that flits from branch to branch, or he could be talking about crutches made from branches and a person sort of hobbling from one leg to the other. The meaning is certainly clear. Why can you not make up your mind? If the Lord is the Lord, why don't you treat him as if he is your Lord? Now, we don't call our other gods the gods of fertility today, but we certainly have them, and the people of Israel certainly had them. When we were in Israel again in February, our guide pointed out to us what Gail and I had already seen on OETA one night, a special program. Some of the leading archaeologists of Israel had pointed out that in their many archaeological digs, since they got control of their portion of Israel in 1947, Every time they have unearthed a village dating back before the Babylonian captivity, they have always found in the ruins the little gods and goddesses of fertility. So while they knew the Shema, after the coming of the scroll of Deuteronomy, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You must have no other god but him. They had other gods. After those who had survived... The onslaught of the Assyrians were carried off to Babylon in 587. They say, no more multiple gods. Judah got it that second time. They got it, but not before. When Elijah lived, when Ahab and Jezebel lived, they were still vacillating one or the other. In the most recent Gallup poll, 92% of the people of America said they believe in God but fewer than 25% are in any church on any given Sunday. It's scary to me. We're losing the World War II generation that believe one should go to church and Sunday school every Sunday. People count themselves active now if they show up once a month or once every six weeks. It's a fact. I've met with pastors of some of the largest United Methodist churches in this country, and they're all experiencing the same thing. They come to our annual meeting from Denver, from Indianapolis, from Houston and Dallas. They come from New Orleans, from Little Rock, and they say, our generation now consider themselves active if they come once a month, once every six or eight weeks. So what's more important the other three weeks or five weeks or seven weeks? What's more important? I never really thought I would live to see Little League Baseball tournaments played on Sunday morning in America. It's happening now. Gymnastics meets, bicycle races, motorcycle rides. Pick a topic. People decide there are other things that are more important. This image of a little bird hopping from limb to limb reminded me of a poem. Some of you are old enough to remember this poem. It's written by Elizabeth Cheney. She was born in 1902 in Chicago. She lost both mother and father when she was a little bitty girl. But she had an aunt and uncle who took her in, who really loved her, saw to it she was in Sunday school and church every Sunday. She grew up to be a poet and a writer. One of her poems became so popular that some of our grandmothers embroidered this little poem, put it up in the kitchen. Maybe you'll remember Said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush around and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. Number two, Elijah called again. Come closer, come closer to me. And then he rebuilt the altar of the Lord. He picked up 12 stones to remind them that they are 12 sons of Jacob. He had them fill four jars of water, but he had them pour and refill, pour and refill, four times three, 12, And he also reminded them about Jacob, whose name had been changed by God. Remember that? Jacob, a twin born holding on to the heel and ankle of his brother, was called Jacob the Grabber. He would grab his brother's birthright. He would flee to the north. He would grab his uncle's daughter, the other daughter. He would grab goats and sheep and make his way home 20 years later and then be told that Esau, who had threatened to kill him for stealing his birthright, was riding toward him with many mounted riders with him. Jacob sent the women and children on across the Jabbok River, struggled all night with Something in the middle of the night, the Bible wants you to believe, it was God. He struggled with God. The next morning, the sun's about to rise, and Jacob said, please bless me. He doesn't scorn on to say, my brother's coming on horseback with all these riders. I have only women and children here. And God said, tell me your name, and I will bless you. I'm the grabber. How would you like to be Israel? How would you like to be better than you've ever been before? How would you like to be more than you've ever been before? How would you like to be Israel? Last Wednesday night, we were host to a youth choir from St. Andrew United Methodist Church in Plano, Texas. The Panseras were on vacation, but they had asked, would one of us be willing to come early Wednesday evening, one of the ministers, and have uh, the communion elements blessed? They wanted it to be a part of their presentation. I said I would do that. Gail and I got here even a little earlier than they had asked us to come. The director of music saw me in center hall down below, and he said, well, it's a little bit early. Could you give our kids a sense of the history of this great church? This church is a hundred years older than ours, he said. They have very little sense of history about their church. I said, I can do that. I didn't tell them nearly everything. I just told them a few things. The Methodist church split at the time of the Civil War, north and south. Oklahoma was not a state, of course. It was still Indian territory. So the northern branch of the church sent a missionary down. When he arrived, he announced he was founding the first Methodist church in Tulsa. The southern branch sent a missionary named Chenoweth, a young man with a young wife and a new baby, a baby in a cradle homemade, a baby in a little chair that we still have downstairs, the cradle we use every Christmas Eve for the baby Jesus. He got to the banks of the Arkansas River, cut down some poles, stuck them in the soft bank, cut down some branches to protect those who might show up, from the heat of the sun and they started having church. Within a few years, they had a wooden building. A few years later, they had a brick building and in 1927, when the congregation was now 34 years old, had 1,600 members, they decided to build this magnificent building. 1,600 of them. And on Easter Sunday, 1929, they triumphantly walked down Boston Avenue from 5th Street to 13th and entered their building for Easter Sunday. Six months later, the stock market crashed. and So many who were being counted on to help pay off this loan no longer had any money. An insurance company held a mortgage. They were out of Omaha, Nebraska. They were threatening to foreclose on the church. Three of the men of this church got on a train, rode all the way to Omaha to plead their case. At noontime, the board of that insurance company said, we're about to have lunch. You go away. We'll talk about this during lunch. You come back at 2 o'clock. We'll give you our answer. When they went back at 2, they were told, we found three Methodist preachers we think could bring your church out of this terrible depression if your bishop will appoint one of those three pastor Boston Avenue Church will continue the lawn they said we can't speak for our bishop but we'll deliver the message they got on the train they rode back to Tulsa they called the bishop he said one of those three was in a big building project he could not move one had only been at his present church a couple of years he could not move the third one he said is already past 60 years old lives over in Arkansas pastor there He's coming toward retirement. I don't think he'll move to Tulsa, Oklahoma, but I'll call and ask him. Dr. Forney Hutchinson said he would come. He and his wife got here. They had the first board meeting. Dr. Hutchinson told him he had called New York, and there was a missionary in Africa that needed the support of Boston Avenue Church, and he had told the Board of Global Ministries Boston Avenue would assume that support. Somebody said, wait, wait. You were brought here because we don't have any money. He said, oh, but every great church is a mission-minded church. Maybe I've made a terrible mistake. We're not really unpacked yet. We can go back to Arkansas. No, no, they said you can't go back to Arkansas. They'll foreclose on our church. They voted to support the missionary. And the next month, they made the payment on their church. And the next month, they made the payment on the church. And the next month, they made the payment on the church. We've got a long history here. 117 years, from Pastor Chenoweth all the way to today. Count the stones, pour the water, and remember that God gave Jacob a new name. Number three, the fire fell from heaven, it says. And the same word then is used, and the people fell on their faces and said, the Lord indeed is God. Now in English, that doesn't say as much as it does in Hebrew. In Hebrew, it says, the Eyeh, Asher Eye is Elohim. The I am who I am is our God. Rabbi Gunther Plaut says that Yom Kippur, the biggest, day of the religious year for Jews, they say this seven times. Except they don't say the name. They don't want to say that name so many times it loses its meaning. So they say the eternal. The eternal is our God. The eternal is our God. The eternal one is our God. Seven times. Horace Bouchanel, born in 1802, grew up in Connecticut. His parents saved their money, sent him to Yale. He proudly boasted while he was a student there that he didn't believe in God. There is no God, he said. He later would write that he woke up one morning feverishly, you know, perspiration pouring off his face. In his deepest heart, in that dream, he had heard a voice saying, if you don't believe in God, what do you believe in? And he said, I believe in right and wrong." And the voice in his deepest heart said, are you living up to the highest you know? And he said, I'm not. Well, live up to the highest that you know. And he started living up to the highest that he knew. He was graduated from Yale, became a teacher, professor at Yale. But when he was 31 years old, He felt that this one who had created the highest that he knew was, in fact, God. He went to Yale Divinity School. When he was graduated, he became pastor of a church that he would pastor for the next 26 years. And when finally it came time to step down because of ill health, he said, I've married you. I've baptized your babies. I've confirmed our young I've buried your parents and your grandparents. But as well as I know you, I pray that I know Christ even better. Number four. If the I am who I am is God, follow him. Follow him. You know the name Archibald Rutledge, born in 1883 on a plantation down in South Carolina. His parents wanted him to have an education. They saved their money. They put him on a train and sent him to Union College in Schenectady, New York. He did well. He was graduated with a degree in English and was offered a teaching position at a preparatory school in Pennsylvania. He taught there for 30 years. He'd become a poet and a writer of short stories. It was now the middle of the Great Depression in this country, and the old plantation home in South Carolina was quickly deteriorating. He gave up his teaching job and went home to see what he could do about that. He worked really hard rebuilding the plantation. One of his stories is about a huge grove of pine trees, where they harvested rosin for making turpentine. And one day, while they were working so hot in those woods, a fire broke out behind them. They never knew if someone had dropped a cigarette, just what it was, but suddenly that hot south wind of summer caught that fire, and it was roaring toward them through that pine forest when one of his men started running toward the fire, screaming, My dog! My dog is in there! My dog is in there! And they started trying to help him fight their way through the wall of fire. And when they got through, they found his dog had in fact died. The man was unconsolable and kept saying, I should have been more careful. I told him to guard my lunch bucket And everything I told him to do, he just did it.